management of intraoperative bleeding. It's going to happen if you're doing oral surgery in your office. We've talked about this with root tips. If you're doing extractions, you're going to break roots off and you're going to have to deal with them and we're going to have to contend with them. Same goes with oral surgery in any capacity. You're going to have bleeding problems at some point in your career if you do it on a regular basis. So I want to talk a little bit about that topic today. Now, this is not an exhaustive conversation, obviously. I'm just going to hit some highlights that I had in mind as I sat down to do this episode. The first thing we talk about or think about when it comes to bleeding is prevention. How do we prevent that from occurring within our practice when we're doing oral surgery? I think a lot of that comes down to getting good histories from our patients, having medication lists, medical histories, understanding the patient that we're dealing with because they're all different. Do any of these patients currently take antiplatelet medications or anticoagulants? Do they have any bleeding disorders? A couple of questions that are on most all of our health questionnaires, if they're not, they should be. So if you're on uh, warfarin, uh, anticoagulant, you probably are best served by getting an INR before doing surgery on that patient. And I like to do that a day before or the morning of, whatever the case may be, but pretty pretty close to the time I'm going to do surgery because they can vary based on patient's diet and they can vary based on dose the patient's taken on a daily basis of uh, Coumadin or Warfarin. And this INR, International Normalized Ratio, that's on a scale, 0.8 to 4.0 is a pretty pretty good range to kind of think about. It can be less than that or higher than that. The literature says that a 4.0 INR is okay to take out teeth on. That's a little high for me. I'm not a fan of that. I'm more along the line of 2.8. And we can work with the physician uh, that prescribes the Coumadin or the Warfarin to the patient to discontinue that and have an INR drawn before surgery. And looking at keeping that INR pretty low, that's my sweet spot. 2 to 2.8, I'm okay with. Some physicians won't let you take them off. Some people will. It just depends on the situation of the patient and their risk. So that's that's one that's kind of an outlier. Uh, patients that are on aspirin, takes about seven days for the aspirin to lose its effect on the platelets. So stopping aspirin a week in advance of doing surgery will help prevent bleeding or extra bleeding that you might incur by doing surgery on a patient that's on regular aspirin therapy. And then you have the Berlinta, you have Eliquis. Those are a couple of big ones in our area that you're dealing with on a regular basis and asking the physician, the prescribing physician, a lot of times it's cardiology, if you can stop those, they'll, they'll usually give you the opportunity to stop those two, three, four days before surgery. And I'm good with all of that. And that's how we try to prevent extra bleeding during surgery. And then with the patients that have bleeding disorders, then of course you're going to have to dig into that more in depth. Do they have Von Willebrands? Do they have thrombocytopenia from whatever, liver disease? What What's going on with the patient? Digging back, thinking about bleeding disorders. With the Von Willebrands patients, hematologists might want to do DDAVP preoperatively, Transexamic acid, you can do it IV, PO, or sometimes an oral rinse. Those are some options, but these are things that you you decide up front, understanding that there's a risk. With the thrombocytopenia, what, what is their platelet count? Do we need to give buttons of platelets, and how do we arrange for that to happen? 
if you're doing these cases. Those are just some preventive things just to get you thinking about what can occur with these patients that they're going to have potential extra bleeding problems. And managing those preoperatively is ideal. Then you have to look at what kind of surgery you're doing. Are you doing something very small? Or are you doing something pretty big like full mouth extraction versus single tooth extraction? A little different scenario. Are you doing dental implants? Are you doing bone grafting? Are you doing uh, tuberosity reduction? Are you doing tori removal? How big is the surgery going to be? And just because it's a single tooth versus multiple teeth doesn't necessarily mean they're going to bleed less. It's still a risk, especially like with that first patient that we were talking about or the first scenario with the patient that's on Coumadin or Warfarin. That INR is super high. A single tooth will bleed like crazy. It'll bleed like crazy. So let me tell you a quick story. I'll bore you with one of my stories. Had a patient that was on Berlinta. We consulted with the prescribing physician. They told us to stop it three days prior to surgery. Patient came in. We took out the tooth. It was number 27, I believe. A little tough surgery. Tooth broke. Did a little bone removal. Ended up placing some hemostatic gauze in a suture. It was dry as a powder house when he left. Fast forward, that was the morning surgery. Fast forward, a little after lunch when my surgical assistants come to me and said, hey, that patient, they ended up going to the emergency room because it started bleeding. And I'm like, well, why didn't they come back here? His wife had called and said they were in the emergency room local, which is right across the parking lot from me, fortunately. She just took him there. She was concerned and didn't even give me a call until after the fact. Okay, fine. Let us know if there's anything we need to do. We didn't hear back from him. Later that evening, I was at dinner. I was already at home. It was after hours. I get a phone call through the answering service. I called this person back. I didn't recognize the name. And it was the daughter of this patient. He was an elderly man. She was in the emergency room with them. This is hours later, telling me that they had been working on this patient on and off all day long and that they couldn't get the bleeding stopped. And that they were going to transfer the patient down to downtown Nashville, because we live out in an outlying community, to see if they could do anything. And I asked them what they'd done. She goes, I don't really know. And so I asked to speak with the emergency room physician, talk to them. And I said, hey, look, you didn't call me. I can come up there. I'll come up and see the patient. I ended up going to the office, picking up my diode laser, some extra hemostatic gauze and some sutures. And I went to the emergency room, went in. Patient was bleeding. It was pretty pretty brisk. Looked around. They had gauze after gauze after gauze. They had done all kinds of different stuff and nothing was working. I numbed the patient up. I took my dial laser. I lasered the soft tissue. It was a little bit of a, like a capillary bleed from one of the bony areas around the extraction site. Took me about 10 minutes, got it to stop, packed it with hemostatic gauze, put in a figure eight suture and stayed around for about 15 minutes and it was done. Stopped. That was even with stopping the anticoagulant before surgery. He had a re-bleed later that morning or early afternoon. And the whole conversation about going to the emergency room versus coming here and doing all that, that's, that's a different conversation. But the bottom line is, is even when you do everything preventively that you can, you can still have that problem. And it could be a single tooth. So don't let the fact that you're just, oh, it's just one tooth. Don't discount that 
versus, oh, I'm doing a full mouth. I need to be more diligent here. I want to make sure that that's clear. So let's look at bleeding. So the, when you look at bleeding, I'd mentioned this, this was coming from a, maybe a bony capillary and some soft tissue. So you've got bleeding from the bone. You can get bleeding from the soft tissue in the area of surgery. You can have an actual direct vessel injury that can cause bleeding. To begin with, any bleeding that I have that doesn't stop within a few minutes, and you can usually tell pretty quick if they're going to bleed extra, go to the old school way of direct pressure. Put some gauze on it. Put some finger pressure on it. Hold it for five, ten minutes. Don't keep looking at it. Hold pressure on it or have the patient bite. And then if it's still bleeding after been biting on gauze for a few minutes, then you can put your finger pressure on it, hold it. And if that doesn't work, maybe you can use some epinephrine. You can use one to 100,000 in like a local anesthetic like lidocaine and see if you can get vasoconstriction to stop some of the soft tissue bleeding. Sometimes you can see a little capillary bleeding through the bone. You can inject in that area. Sometimes you can even do that around a small vessel injury and it'll contract and stop the bleeding. So pressure first, then epinephrine is my second line of defense, if you will, or treatment. I will put in hemostatic gauze. The cellulose-based hemostatic gauze, I'll pack it full and then I'll throw a figure eight suture over it and then go back to direct pressure. So these are like my top three regular things that I do for the the majority of bleeding that we have. Once we get to that point and we're still not doing well, if it's bleeding from bone, I'll pull out the bone wax. So we have a little bit of bone wax in the in the office and sometimes you can use that and just seal that little bleed off from the bone and that works pretty well. But ultimately my secret and I I talk about this a lot. The lifesaver for me when it comes to bleeding is this diode laser. We have a SOL or a SOL, S-O-L, diode laser that I have. And I bought this thing originally for pathology, removing soft tissue neoplasms from patients that needed it. And it works great for that. And and I still use it. So I use it for pathology. That was my primary reason. But what's happened is that primary reason of pathology is not really what I use it mostly for. I use it for hemostatic control postoperatively or intraoperatively. And you can take this diode laser and you can buzz soft tissue, coag soft tissue oozing. You can hit these little capillaries that are bleeding from the bone. It'll stop that. I've used it on vessel injuries. You'll see an arterial bleed in the soft tissue and this it's squirting blood. Put a little pressure on it. Start easing back to see where it's at and buzz it with this coag setting on this diode laser. Man, it's money. It is money. So if you don't have one of those and you're doing a lot of surgery, you should invest. It is worth every penny. I don't sell these things. I'm not an affiliate, but I'm telling you, it will make your life so much better and so much easier in dealing with these patients that have bleeding. Even with rebleed. So patient leaves, everything's fine. And a lot of times we have young people, wisdom teeth, no health history significant for bleeding disorders, no medications. And they'll leave, and a few hours later, mom or dad or somebody will call back and say, hey, I'm bleeding pretty bad. I need to come back in. We'll just tell them, just come wrong back in. We'll just take a look. Majority of the time, it's not anything significant. We don't have to do anything. But occasionally, I'll have to take down 
any dressing or sutures that I have in these sites, go back in and explore and see what's going on. And you'll find that every once in a while, you'll have a little vessel bleed from where the epinephrine has worn off and that vessel has dilated and it started bleeding again. And I've, I've seen this a few times in my career. Go in, renum the patient, take this dressing down, explore, find where your bleed's coming from, take that dial laser, buzz it, done, stopped, over. I'll repack it with hemostatic gauze, throw a uh, figure eight suture in, done. Very, I can't, I'm not even going to say it, a re-bleed, follow-up, after the second treatment, like if they come in for surgery, they come back for a rebleed and we treat the rebleed. There's not a second visit after that because usually we get it under control with the dial laser and it's done. The point being, bleeding is going to occur if you're doing surgery. You need to be prepared for it. The first step is preventing any of that from happening based on the health history, the medications, if you know about it. And occasionally, and this is a side note, occasionally you'll You'll be the first person to do surgery on a patient, especially a young person. They'll go to the hospital because they're bleeding significantly from all the extraction sites. And indirectly, you're the one that helps them get diagnosed with a Von Willebrand or some a blood dyscrasia that we know nothing about. It was just oddly happened. They kept bleeding, kept bleeding, and they went to the hospital and they realized that they had to treat them. And they find out that the patient has some type of bleeding disorder. And it's happened to me in my career once. A patient ended up having Von Willebrand's. No history, no family history, but he had it. And we didn't know about it until he started bleeding after wisdom teeth removal. That's a, that's a scary proposition. You know, sometimes we live on the edge and we don't even realize it. So that's my conversation about bleeding. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any other approaches to this that you use that I didn't mention, please share them with me. I will share them with the audience because we, the collective mind is better than the single mind. These are just some things that I've used and the experiences that I've had, but we want to minimize this obviously as much as possible. Occasionally, the patients are very compromised health-wise, and I won't even do them in the office. I'll do them in the outpatient center uh, at the local hospital, or sometimes I'll refer them to the academic setting down at Vanderbilt, which is a, you know, a few minutes away, and let them take care of the patients because that's they're better served there. So sometimes just not doing anything, referring the patient, is not a bad thing. And that's okay, too. If you're going to do these cases, knowing that this is a potential is always helpful and being prepared for it. That's the main thing. You know, if you're prepared, it's less likely to happen. It's when you're not prepared when you get surprised with this stuff. Not always, but occasionally. Appreciate you listening in. Appreciate your time. I uh, look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Send me those emails, russell at oralsurgerysuccess.com. Let me know how we're doing. Thanks.